Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Van Leer series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome Sam Weinberg back to the podcast. Sam is the Margaret Jacks Professor of Education Emeritus at Stanford University. His research integrates the fields of history, cognitive science, and education. Sam was a guest on our show back in 2021 when we talked about his earlier book, Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. It's good to have Sam back with us today to discuss his brand new book, co-authored with Mike Caulfield. The book is Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions About What to Believe. Sam Weinberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Sam, Your book, Verified, is incredibly timely. It addresses the challenges of navigating a world filled with misinformation. What inspired you to focus on this subject using a how-to format? Well, there are uh, an awful lot of theoretical pieces about misinformation and disinformation and its causes and how it spreads and the way that it catches on and how it's connected to a variety of conspiracy theories and things of that sort. But when we looked around, there were very few books that really provided an introduction with practical tips for how to make better decisions about the kinds of things that flow across our screens. So we we looked around and and we, we, we saw an awful lot of things that perhaps uh, uh, make you better informed about the nature of the problem. But there was really nothing like a, a driver's manual for the internet. And we decided that that would be filling a very important need to, to the, the ability to, to to pick up a book that is written and without jargon and without a lot of, uh, of the scholarly architecture. That's all in the footnotes, but that is easy to read. And when you get done reading a chapter, you have some very practical ideas about how to make better choices. Practical is really what we need because this is a practical problem. 
So let's talk about the practicalities. Uh, what are the three contexts we should attend to first when looking for information on the web? So the first thing that we should think about is um, is who provided it? Where does the information come from? And then the second is, uh, in what kind of venue does it appear? Does it appear in a social media post? Does it appear in a publication you've never heard of? And then if that is not the original uh, source, going back to the original place where it actually appeared. So if it's uh, one of the examples that we use is a meme, a meme about arsonist birds, about birds that actually cause fires. And it's uh, the, the meme that accompanies this claim is a very scary one of a, a, a very intimidating looking hawk. Well, when you follow that back to where you found, found it, uh, it's probably something that came across social media, it appears in a newspaper article, the National Post in Canada. But that's not the original place where it's reported. So if you really want to ascertain whether this, this idea of ar arsonist birds exists, you go back to uh, the original reporting source, which is a journal article that actually documents in Australia there are these particular kinds of birds that will pick up embers from uh, uh, a, a fire and place them in a, a dry area of land in order to flesh out prey. So even though the claim seems improbable, it turns out to be something that's well-documented that is studied by scientists. So that's the first the second, and is there a third context? Yeah, the third is the original source, the, not the reporting source, but the original source. Okay, but most people begin their search, if they don't end it, <laughs> with Google. So why can that be a problem? Google, um, first of all, let's, let's distinguish that Google is an incredibly important tool. And if you know how to use it, uh, it's probably the best fact-checking device ever invented for humanity. But there are a few things that people need to understand about Google. One is the, the, whole, the whole concept of search engine optimization, which goes by the acronym SEO. And search engine optimization is the, is the, is the business, really, of different websites trying to jostle for attention and get up to the top of the list. And so they do this through metadata, through keywords, through trying to essentially game Google's algorithm. And so the, a lot of people think that the, the, the top result is necessarily the best. In fact, according to Google's data, something like 65% of all searches end before the fourth result, so the top three results. And in many cases, and we're not talking about ads, we're talking about what Google calls organic results, those results that are not paid for. But it's a cat and mouse game that uh, that search engine optimization companies, it's a, it's a, I think last year it was like a $60 billion a year business, um, that they are, are doing everything that they can to get their results up at the top of the page. So oftentimes in a search, the best result could be in the middle of the page or even in the second page of results. And that is something that people rarely look at. They rarely take in the first 10 to 12 results in order to make a wise first choice. They they depend upon Google and the first few results to, uh, to come up with the answer for them. And that can often get them into trouble. So you recommend that people 
not only go down the first page, but maybe even go to the second, third, twelfth page to find what Google has to tell them? I mean, again, Brene, it, it depends on what your purpose is. If you're try if if you if let's let's go back to this this claim about arsonist birds. Um, if it's something that you are intrigued by and you wonder whether you should forward it to your friends and family because it's interesting to you and you want to kind of you don't want to engage in digital littering you don't want to propagate a false claim but you also don't want to turn it into your the oral exam for your dissertation so you don't want to spend hours on it i would say with coming up with the appropriate keywords looking at the first page results and scanning them before choosing one to click on is probably adequate it's something that we call we we call this process click restraint Often when we observe people, and I'm a, a researcher of how people make choices, they spend maybe two to three seconds before clicking on the first result. What professionals do, what the virtuosos of the internet do, is they they engage in click restraint, which is they put in keywords, they get the results, and they spend about, oh, eight or nine seconds, which actually, if you put on a stopwatch, it's it's quite a long time scanning the full list of results on the first page of Google, which is 10 results, and then making a wise first choice. So that wise first choice might be result eight, it might be result two. Um, but, but rather than impulsively clicking the first thing that appears, understanding that the search engine results page, that the, 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 the results that Google gives you is a kind of source and you have to understand what kind of information neighborhood you've landed into? So that's a that's an interesting concept that when you you put in keywords, you're actually um, you're actually ending up in a place that you're being parachuted into an unknown territory. And before quickly making an impulsive move, to kind of find out, get a sense of the lay of the land, get your bearings, and then make a wise first choice. I like that phrase you just used uh, to avoid digital littering. Yeah, there's really a lot of that. <laughs> well, you recommend lateral reading. Uh, why is that? What is it, first of all, and why is it an important skill? So this is the this is the biggest uh, difference that we found when we compared um, thoughtful readers, smart people. I want to emphasize that in in many of our ethnographic studies, we were we were interviewing and watching what people with PhDs do, as well as students at my own university at Stanford, which is uh, a very competitive university to get into. We These are good readers. They're critical thinkers. In many cases, they have articles and books to their credit. And we compared them to professional fact checkers at uh, some of the United States' most prestigious uh, publications. I can't can't tell you the names of them. I'm, I'm, I'm barred from doing that by our institutional board. But uh, if you were to guess, you'd probably be right. And the biggest difference that we saw with between smart people and fact checkers was that smart people often fancy themselves a little bit too smart. And so <laughs> yeah. when they when they they Google uh, something that they are not experts on, they rely upon their critical thinking ability. They rely upon the fact that they are good readers, that they rely upon the fact that they have tested well and that they consider themselves intelligent. And they spend a great deal of time on an unfamiliar website. And there's really no bigger waste of time than to apply critical thinking to something that is not worthy 
of that kind of cognitive effort. And what lateral reading is, it's something, it's, it, it seems intuitive when you hear it, but it's not something that people ordinarily do. And so when fact checkers come to a site that they're unfamiliar with, rather than spending a lot of time trying to figure out, is this a reliable site? Is the information something that I can lean on and depend upon? They use the power of the internet and they open up new tabs and they essentially put in the name of the organization of the original site into a new tab. And first, try to figure out whether this particular organization is worthy of their time. So I can give you a concrete example. Uh, one of the websites that we've tested people on is ILSI.org, the International Life Sciences Institute. And if people went to, if, 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 if your listeners out there go to ILSI.org, you will come to a very impressive website that offers nutrition information. They publish a peer-reviewed journal. They are a, uh, an, a nonprofit organization uh, it is a very aesthetically pleasing website. They have a scientific board. And if you were to, to actually Google the people on the scientific board, um, you will find that they do have positions at universities. And there's nothing, there's no, there are, there's no lying or scamming in terms of what they put on. However, rather than spending five minutes trying to discern, is this a, is this a site that I would take stock in, that, that I would believe? What a fact checker does is they put the name of the organization into their browser before spending a lot, before devoting a lot of time on the original site. And you quickly find that this is a very sophisticated organization with a $17 million a year budget that is largely financed by the sugar and food industries. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the information is wrong, but there is a very clear conflict of interest between an article touting the benefits of sugar and receiving money from the, from the sugar industry. So that's what lateral reading is. Lateral reading is essentially using the internet to read the internet, not relying on our innate cognitive, our, our innate critical thinking abilities, but to, to exploit the power of a galaxy of electronically linked resources in, in order to not waste our time and to come up to with a to come to a better decision in a fraction of the time than it would take to study a particular website. Okay, that, well, that's very good to look for, look out for conflict of interest. Uh, you also recommend that uh, when searching the internet, we favor scholarly sources for uh, fair and neutral information. But don't scholars have biases that influence their findings? Absolutely. That's a, that, that's a that's a great point, Renee. Of, of course, and there are so many scholarly journals that you can pretty much find a, 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 peer a peer refereed article for practically any wacky claim you want to come up with. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons that we say that we have a kind of, we, we cast a cautious eye toward the idea of the singular, uh, uh, the singular referee publication. And we, rec we have a whole chapter called Reading the Room. And what reading the room is, is it's when you are trying to investigate an unfamiliar topic, trying to get a broad synoptic view of what of, of the of the controversies around that topic. So for instance, if you're trying to understand the issue of uh, vaccinations and its connection to autism, should you find a, a, a single refereed article claiming there is a connection? 
or try to get a sense of a literature review, a, a, a consensus view across many different studies of what the, what the scientific consensus is. The particular example that we use in the book is something that is very, very, you'll very commonly see the claim that playing chess makes you more intelligent and raises your IQ. Now, can you find uh, a single uh, uh, peer-reviewed study that says that you can't? And you're, if, if, if the listeners were to Google that uh, and they put in, uh, find a study touting the benefits of chess and its relationship to increases in intelligence, they will be able to find a peer-reviewed publication that says that. But that is an easy way to get to get steered down the wrong path. What you really want to find is an aggregation across a variety of different studies about something that is is perhaps there are differences of opinion. And when you you do that and you find that piece, the example we use is a literature review. I think it's of 26 different studies that um, shows that what playing chess does is it makes you better at playing chess. And it doesn't doesn't lead to uh, generalized benefits of increases in intelligence. So yes, you're absolutely right. Individual scholars have biases. That's why you want to kind of get a bird's eye view across a lot of different scholarly sources in order to understand what's the scientific position on a particular question. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Okay, that's that's very helpful. Uh, Sam, you're a researcher on historical thinking and the teaching and learning of history. What are your thoughts about the recent surveys that revealed widespread ignorance of 20th century history among young people? The, the first thing I would say in response is that each generation claims that its current young people are imbeciles. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to give I'm going to give you a quotation. It's one of my favorite examples. Uh, no school can be satisfied with a score of 33 out of 100 on the most common facts in American history. That quote is actually from the first uh, uh, large scale test of historical facts given in the United States, and it was given in Texas in 1918 to high school students as well as college students. Now, if you think back to who made it to high school and who made it to college in 1918 in places like Houston and Galveston and Dallas, you realize we're talking about a tiny elite. And that was the results of the result of that study. There was a study during world the middle of World War II by Alan Nevins, a prominent historian at Columbia who basically said that the that college freshmen at Columbia 
were absolutely ignorant, and he said it endangered the ability to fight on the battlefield that people don't know why they're fighting. Uh, in the bicentennial year in, two, in, in 1976, a historian at Harvard, Bernard Balin, uh, created another survey for high school and college students, and they came to similar conclusions. So again, the idea somehow that this generation is woefully ignorant, uh, I refer to that as the kind of uh, a wishful nostalgia for a time that never was. That we, we have no case in since the documentation of tests of historical facts of adults being satisfied with what young people know. So that's my first response, that, 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 that to equate students' responses on a decontextualized test with their total ignorance is, is a very problematic position to take. Now, there are, there are uh, at, at this, in the same breath, I have to say that I was concerned with the results of a recent survey by The Economist, a very prominent magazine with a very good reputation. That's about I have in mind. Yeah. About the widespread ignorance of the Holocaust. And I think that that what what before we jump to conclusions, we need to look at the actual questions that were asked. Uh, one of the questions, and this was a question done in another survey, uh, is uh, claiming that students don't know what Auschwitz was or don't understand it. And the, the choices on the test were uh, uh, the number of victims in the Holocaust. Was it 6 million? Was it 4 million? Was it 3 million? or none at all, or something something to that sort. And so again, some, sometimes you have to look at the questions to ask yourself, okay, um, for a young person to say four million, there were 4 million victims of the Holocaust, does that mean that that person is a Holocaust denier? Absolutely not. It means that there is, that our ability to retain factual information is limited, particularly at a young age. And so I, I think that what, what I can say with, with a, a, a degree of, of some certainty is that students are reading fewer books. They're reading fewer digit, there are fewer print resources. Their concentration is fragmented, like all of our concentration. Any of us who carries a device in our pocket that buzzes and vibrates every five minutes, uh, we have a difficult time sitting with a, a book and essentially detaching ourselves from from some from some device that buzzes us when we're trying to maintain our our concentration. Most academics are dismissive of Wikipedia. Tell us why you disagree and find it a valuable resource. This was one of the most surprising results of our of our research with professional fact checkers. They they did not follow the advice of, uh, of many many middle school teachers who tell students, don't go to Wikipedia because anybody can change it. Um, often the first stop on a, a particular uh, search on the internet was to Wikipedia. So uh, I'll give you a concrete example. One of, the, one of the scenarios that we gave to all of the participants in our research was that uh, one of their, their children or a brother or a sister was being bullied at school. And so you are a concerned adult, a guardian, a parent, a sibling, and you go on the internet and you want to find out what the best practices are for preventing bullying at school. And so we tell people that's their challenge. They We open up a laptop and we let them 
have a go at it at, at Google. And one of the first sites that comes up, going back to this question of, of should you choose the first site, one of the first sites that comes up is Bullying at School Never Acceptable by a, a .org organization called the American College of Pediatricians. And what people often do, smart, again, I'm going to emphasize smart people, is that they will go to the site and they will start to scrutinize it. And they will notice that it's a .org. Uh, they will notice that it is a, a nonprofit organization, that the, the, the information is displayed as a scientific article with uh, some text and with scientific references. What fact checkers do is they read laterally, and one of the first sites that they look at is Wikipedia. And when you go to Wikipedia in this particular instance, you immediately see, you immediately see that the American College of Pediatricians is not the main organization of pediatricians in the world. That would be the American Academy of Pediatrics with 66,000 members. The American College of Pediatricians is a uh, uh, an evangelical Christian organization with two to 300 members, it's been estimated, that split off from the main group of pediatricians over the issue of adoption by same-sex couples. And so this is something that you immediately find out in Wikipedia. And when a claim like this is made in Wikipedia, uh, what what professionals do is they go down to the references almost immediately to see if they recognize any of the sources that document this information. In this particular instance, there is a letter by Francis S. Collins, who was the director of the National Institutes of Health, that talks about the way that this organization misuses misused his research, and it's a essentially a condemnation of the organization. Now, all of that was found out in the space of about of less than 60 seconds, while other smart people at the end of five minutes are still trying to make up their minds whether the information on, on the original site is worthy of their attention. So, you know, there are some myths about Wikipedia that we we dispel in the book. First of all, the idea that anybody can change it. No, that's not true. There's something like uh, 14 to 16 different kinds of locks that are on Wikipedia changes, uh, Wikipedia changes pages that only top-level Wikipedians can change. So for instance, practically anything about Israel-Palestine is a locked page, and you or I, and unless we were top-level Wikipedians, could not make changes to those pages. Those are pages are locked, and only people with a great deal of credibility in editing. So it's something that you earn on Wikipedia, making successful changes. Only people like that can have entries to those pages. So Wikipedia is, an, is an, an indispensable tool for anyone who wants to make thoughtful, quick decisions. That doesn't mean that everything on Wikipedia is true, but um, Wikipedia is like, a, we, we compare it to uh, a, a carpenter who goes to a, a work site without a hammer and a saw. Somebody who says, I won't use Wikipedia is really essentially abrogating and not using those a, a set of tools that are absolutely essential to anyone making thoughtful decisions on the internet. Talk about false framing, or what you call connect my dots, just one of the ways we can be manipulated on the internet. Well, this, this, I mean, this is something that is so current right now. Think of, of like all of the social media feeds that claim to, uh, I just ran across one today that claimed that <clears throat> Hamas fired uh, uh, a helicopter, uh, downed a helicopter over over Gaza. It turns out that, yes, it is a picture of a helicopter 
falling from the sky. There's nothing manipulated by that that picture. It actually is a helicopter in flames that was falling to the earth, but it was actually from Syria in 2018. So again, this has been very common in the current conflict, the current war that is is going on at this moment, where people will take a picture or will take a video from something else and they will create a false frame. They will put a caption on it and claim that it is from events that are going on today and it will get it will be spread and it will go viral when in many, many, many cases it's from a completely different time period and often from a completely different location. And is there some way we can protect ourselves from being fooled by connect the dots or false framing? Well, one of the easiest things we can do is to right click with our mouse and ask Google to do a reverse image search. So just to see where the original image appeared and using Google Lens, you can very quickly, and again, when I say very quickly, I'm talking about if you know what you're doing, and this is something that we explain in the book, um, you can find out whether this is something that you should forward to family and friends in less than 30 seconds. Now tell us a bit about the infiltration of advertising into news. This is one of the biggest problems that we have today. Uh, back in the old days, back when uh, uh, many of, of, of probably of the, the listeners uh, grew up, when they were looking at a physical newspaper something print, an advertisement would be separated by a box. It would not appear on the editorial page. It would often, if it did appear on the front page, it would be set off in the bottom with some type of indication that it was paid for, that it was an advertisement. What we have in the days of the internet in our modern day is we have something called stealth advertising. We have advertising that is designed in order to blend in with regular news content using the same fonts, using the same color scheme. The whole goal is to make it as, look as much like news as possible. And this is not done by some nefarious outside influence. These kinds of uh, advertisements are designed in-house by the biggest names that we have in journalism, by the New York Times, by the Atlantic, by the BBC, by the biggest names that we have are engaged in this new form of advertising, but it's really, it's, 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 it's ads that are masquerading as news stories. And you will find in, in the United States, for instance, if it's an American publication, they have to abide by the Federal Trade Commission's dictates that it somehow be labeled. But that's a very, very wobbly designation, what labeling means. So there, it, it, at one time, the, 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 the basic word advertisement was the label and it was appeared at the top of a, a particular ad in a digital content. But now there's all kinds of different words. So it's brought to you by in partnership and sometimes simply with the word with. And it's often disguised. It's often in the far left corner and it is completely overshadowed by a headline or by a photo. And it turns out that young people are completely deceived. In, in a study that we did in 2016, 82% of middle school students were deceived. They couldn't tell the difference between an ad and a new story. And in research not done by my team, but by researchers at Boston University and the University of Georgia, tested adults. And it turns out that nine out of 10 adults 
had difficulty distinguishing between an ad and a news story as well. So this is a huge problem to, to you're, you're reading something and you have to be really on guard to make sure that it's not something that is sponsored by a company, by big oil, by big sugar, by big soda. Wow. Finally, Sam, uh, now that AI is here with deep fakes and seamless doctoring of text, audio, and images, do we still have a fighting chance of separating truth from lies on the internet? I sure hope so. <laughs> if we don't, uh, the future of democracy is in trouble. What 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 AI does is it homogenizes different sources and it hides the provenance of information. And so in many cases, it can be a useful tool, particularly for getting a, a general understanding of a topic that we're unfamiliar with. But as we as we all know, uh, the 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 entries, the, the the information that we get from AI is a kind of mashup from all kinds of different sources. So before trusting it, before really putting stock in it, we have to um, go back to the internet and actually try to verify if it matters to us, if it's an issue of health concern, if it's a, a new drug, we really, it, 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 we are obliged before taking the information that I give AI gives us at face value, we are obliged to really check it out to see if it's something that we want to believe and to possibly even uh, put the health of one of our loved ones in the hands of our information seeking. So we, it's necessary to check out. Well, your book is helping us do that. The book is Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions About What to Believe Online. Thanks for talking with me today, Sam. Thank you for having me. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. <laughs>